The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today I am joined by Gary Katz. Gary is the CEO and founder of Katz Water Technologies. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to join your podcast. Awesome. So today we're going to talk a little bit about being a patent attorney turned founder, which is your story. So if you wouldn't mind, give the audience a little bit of your background. So my background was oil and gas, as well as law and technology. How did that happen, you might ask? Well, my undergraduate degree was in geology and went to law school. And then my first job out of law school was with ExxonMobil. Initially, I applied for New Jersey. They saw my resume, geology and law with an emphasis on IP law and said I'd be a perfect fit for Houston. I went down to Houston, worked for almost five years in Houston as a patent attorney, working for the upstream research and development company. And we were doing both patent work as well as technology development and contracting. So I got a good sense of the industry and technology development for the industry. After that, uh, I was transferred to Exxon in New Jersey, where I did quite a bit of IP and technology development strategy, particularly for downstream and the chemicals and finished lubricants and fuels. So got a different perspective on the process engineering. After that, I left Exxon and I did some work in law firms, both in a boutique IP firm and a large law firm, and also worked on several entrepreneurial pursuits. So I have quite a diverse background, and including working with a big oil company, a large corporation, as well as working with big and small law firms. And I even did some work as a solo practitioner and now as a startup. So I've seen the needs pretty much throughout this spectrum. That's awesome. Thank you for that. So, you know, you touched on being a patent attorney, and I know that obviously a lot of companies, especially if they've got, you know, whether it be digital or whether it be physical equipment or technology that they're trying to patent, can you talk a little bit about what the process of filing a patent looks like? How long does it take? What are some of the requirements, things of that nature? Okay. So... Anyone who's been through the process knows that a patent is not an easy process. I know one federal judge described it as one of the most difficult legal documents to draft. So it's not only time consuming, but also could be very expensive. So you have to know that going in, that it's not going to be an easy process. It's going to require both time, money, and effort. So that's the first thing. And then also you have to understand the value proposition, what you're trying to accomplish. So as far as the patenting process, the first thing is what we call conception and reduction to practice. 
Conception is when you come up with the idea. And reduction of practice is when you develop the idea enough so that you could actually write a patent or build and produce it. So in order to get in a patent, you have to describe the technology in enough detail that one skilled in the art can use and practice the technology as claimed. So that's quite a bit of explanation. And obviously there's different standards. So when most people in the industry are scientists or engineers, so that's one level that you're talking to. But a lot of people don't realize is you're also talking to others in the industry. You're talking to lawyers, you're talking to executives, and if it goes to litigation, you're talking to a judge and a jury that may not have that technical background. So a good patent explains the technology to people at multiple levels and from multiple perspectives. So it's always quite a bit of detail. Okay, so we got the process. First is the conception, the idea. And maybe I'll give an example of how the technology I developed. So I came up with the idea when I saw thermal distillation processes that were being used to purify water were quite complex mm-hmm. and weren't economical. In particular, I read a report from a professor who built the thermal distillation system out in West Texas. And while they were able to get it to work, it was difficult to coordinate all the different pieces of equipment and it wasn't economical compared to other disposal options. So I looked at the schematics and realized that they were building a complicated chemical factory in order to accomplish something that was very simple, thermal distillation, though let's face it, has been around almost since the beginning of civilization. So I looked, and what they were doing is the standard thermal distillation process where you have the energy source, the distillation, the separation, and then the condensation. And each one of the process steps was a separate piece of equipment. It was very complex, and you had to have pumps and energy to transport it from each step. So it was an extremely complicated process. And when I read through that, it was hard to get the different process steps to work together. I could easily understand it. So my training was always as a process engineer to simplify technology. And I looked for ways to simplify. And I realized that the key was in the heat exchanger. So if we could do the distillation and separation inside the heat exchanger, that will combine several steps into one. So I put a distillation column in the vertical runs of a heat exchanger. We did the separation by allowing alternate flow paths and open it up instead of a closed system. And the energy source, we put the gas burner or the heat directly on the heat exchanger. And then the separation we accomplished by either putting in the vapor back into the system or condensing it with an energy recapture by heat exchanger attached to the system. So basically combine multiple steps into a simple process. I looked in the patent literature and in the technology literature and realized that no one ever did that. So at that point, I decided to file a patent application. So at that point, I had to take the idea, which was to simplify it, and make sure we described it in enough detail so that one could build, make, and use the technology. And then you file the patent application. Now, initially, 
the best process is to file it provisionally because a provisional is a low expense filing and it has a lower bar. Now, provisional application, you just have to have an enabling disclosure, which means enough detail so that one skilled in the art can practice the invention. You don't have to have formal drawings and claims and all the other details, although it could be generally helpful to have. And that buys you one year where you get patent pending protection, where that filing date is the date of filing, and you have a year to file a much more expensive non-provisional application. So you're starting with the provisional because it's sort of like the bare minimum, right? And this way you don't have to give... A, you don't have to spend too much up front, and it gives you some time to start to develop the other parts of your patent. Yes. And so what are some, in just kind of brief overview, what are some common issues that people run into when filing for patents? So probably the biggest issue is they don't provide enough detail. So they have an idea, and they may be describing it in a paragraph or two. Okay. And that's really not an enabling disclosure. Okay. And so one more question about patents. So like, let's say, for instance, a startup or a company that's starting to grow, they're looking to start working with a patent attorney. What are some questions that they should be asking those patent attorneys to figure out if they're the right fit for them? Because I think sometimes you go out, you're interviewing people. What are some good questions to ask to make sure that you're getting somebody that has probably the best experience or the best skills to help you? So with patent attorneys, you generally want one that has experience in that technological area so that that would be the first question is what similar patents have you filed in the past and make sure that they understand the technology because if they don't understand the technology, it's going to be very hard to provide the detail you need. But my recommendation was before you approach a patent attorney, you should have a very good write-up Typically, it's called an invention disclosure statement in which you list what the technology is. And you should also have a good story on what has been done in the past, what are the issues that have been done in the past, and what needs to be done to better address that issue. And then you go in and then you describe your technology, how it addresses that issue. And you want to do it with quite a bit of detail. Now, typically, you know, inventors just like to say, all right, it's great. Here's the general idea. You work on it. But you know what? The more detail you provide, the better the patent attorney can do for you. In fact, in the rare cases where we don't get a patent, it's usually because we don't provide enough detail. And in fact, once you file a patent non-provisionally, a year or two later, sometimes more, you get an office action. Now, almost every time the patent office is going to reject the filing because they want you to prove that you're different than the prior art. Now, the U.S. law states you're entitled to a patent if it's novel, if it's unobvious, and useful. So useful just means it has a practical application and is one of the statutory classifications. Novel means that no one's done exactly what you've done. And unobvious means it can't be an obvious combination of known devices for its intended uses. So typically what the examiner will do is he'll find several 
patents or several publications and piece them together and say, if we pick and choose certain elements, we get what you're claiming. Now, typically when I get these office actions, I'll go back to the inventor and I'll say, this is what the examiner is saying. How do we respond? And almost always the inventor will say, we're different and we'll list one or more reasons. And the next question I'll ask the inventor is, where is it in the application? And if we did a good job, the inventor will point where it is in the application. And then we have support for arguing that we're different. Gotcha. Unfortunately, what sometimes happens is the inventor will say it's not in the application. And I'll remind him, I said, didn't I tell you to provide all the details possible, whether you think it's important or not? And they'll say, well, I know you said that, but I really didn't think that was important. <laughs> well, there's a basic, you know, fundamental law in patent in that you're not allowed to add new matter. So if you're different, it has to be in the initial application or you can't argue that that's a difference later on. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what prompted you? I mean, I think you mentioned this a little bit about you know reading a paper that prompted you to start KWT and you started to go down this journey. Kind of explain this journey, what it's been like for the past few years, because I believe if I remember correctly, you started in 2016, correct? Yes. So I actually filed the application in late 2014 and just didn't do anything with it. And at 2016, I saw that the water and water management was becoming an ever-increasing problem. There was major droughts and that oil and gas companies were competing with municipalities, farmers and ranchers for scarce water resources. And it was obvious that at that time, and I believe it still is, the number one problem facing oil and gas producers today. So I decided to go with the technology and uh, form a corporation and do everything I can to bring it to market. So yeah, you kind of touched on it. What benefits does your solutions provide to the operators? And can you talk about that a little bit? So the benefit it provides to the operators is that we're able to purify the water for freshwater quality for reuse cheaper than typical disposal costs. So at that point, it's actually not just good for the environment in that you're not disposing as much wastewater, but it's also economically beneficial because we reduced their disposal costs, which in Texas is approximately 60% of the operating costs for an upstream well. So you're saying 60% of the operating cost for an upstream well is disposal costs. And that's yes, just, is that water just for, management. Wow. I mean, how much would you say, like on a percentage wise, would the solution that your company has developed, how much could that save them? So it really depends, but we're targeting savings of up to 50% and then doing a split thereof. So, you know, it's a significant savings and it could be even more if the operator needs the fresh water. Now, sometimes you could frack with produced water or flowback water, but sometimes you need fresh water for operations such as drilling completions. And if you do, Often that's a costly sourcing exercise. So having water can provide additional benefits. And then also we could, in certain instances, you know, concentrate the brine into a heavy drilling mud 
and then that could be reused for drilling operations. So basically, we could take multiple waste products. You have, in certain instances, gas is a waste product, which it's flared or has very little value. Sometimes you have to pay the pipelines to take it away, although that's not so much the case today. But if you don't have a pipeline, you're going to have to flare the gas so that you take a waste energy source, you use that to purify the waste water, and then you get a pure water that could be recycled water that could be reused for on-site operations, sold to farmers or ranchers, or even given back to the environment for beneficial recharge. Why not return clean water to the streams and aquifers? And then for the reject brine, if we concentrate at the high enough densities, we could reuse that as a drilling mud. So we take multiple waste products and turn it into multiple revenue streams. So instead of having to flare off the gas that, you know, let's say if they weren't able to move it or, you know, they didn't have any other uses for it, they could use that gas, the flare off gas to run or heat the exchange in your device to purify the water. Is that correct? Yes. So then you take a waste product, which is a regulatory headache because you have to constantly reapply for the flare gas permits and use it to reduce your cost on the disposal. And then we can get uh, revenue streams potentially from the water and the brine if there's a market for it. So don't they already typically have some systems for cleaning the water, reusing the water already? Or how is this a little bit different than that? So yes, it depends on what you're talking about. So there are some water recyclers, and most of them focus on frack water recycling, Mm -hmm. in which case they mainly focus on flowback water. So when you frack a well, you put the water and additives under heavy pressure, and you cause the formation to frack. And a portion of that water that's placed under heavy pressure comes back on the wellhead right away. And the same water trucks that deliver the frack water also collect that water back, and that's called flowback water. Now, in the past, they used to dispose of it, but more and more what they're doing is that they're reusing it for future frack jobs. Now, they're not really cleaning it to fresh water. What they're doing is they're filtering it to remove the suspended solids, and they're typically applying a biocide, usually chlorine dioxide, to kill all the organics because otherwise the heavy contaminant levels will cause a microbial explosion and can result in fouling if you use it again. So it's actually a very cheap but effective process where they filter it and kill the microbes and then they can reuse it for frack water. So we're not trying to compete with those water recyclers. The market we're going after is the production water which is the water that's removed from the wellhead during production. So at the wellhead, you usually get a mix of water, oil, and gas. And then you run it through a three-phase separator, usually first a solid separator and then the three-phase, where you remove the oil, which is sold onto the market, either a pipeline or truck. The gas, which if you could sell it to a pipeline is great. If not, it's flared. And then the water which is typically stored and either put in a pipeline or sent on a water truck to a disposal well. Now, sometimes you're lucky you have a disposal well on site, so the costs are cheap. But very often, and now that disposal wells are harder to get, permitting-wise, particularly with the linkage to earthquakes, that 
the water has to be trucked or piped further along. Now, a pipeline is a massive capital expense, and a truck is a massive operating expense of at least a dollar a barrel, and then you still have to pay the disposal well. Wow. Okay. So I could see where there would be benefit for being able to clean the water and then reuse it or return it to other sources. That's interesting. Yes. So tell me a little bit about, you know, obviously we talked a little bit about the journey of the company and what you've done. And I know you've worked with like the Department of Energy and you've done some pitch events and things like that. Talk a little bit about some of the things that challenges that the companies had to go through to bring this product to market. Oh, great question. So yeah, we've had lots of challenges. I know initially no one wanted to fund us. I initially spoke to angel investors and they gave me their long list of items that I needed to do. I needed to patent the technology. I needed to prove it at multiple well sites. I needed the hockey stick of increasing revenues. I needed to have at least one board member be an executive from a major oil company. And I needed at least one contract from a major oil company. And that was great advice, but I was thinking to myself, I didn't actually tell this investor, if I have all that, why would I go to you? I'll go to the bank and raise the money myself. <laughs> and so, I mean, how many of those milestones have you decided that you're going to go for? So we've almost accomplished all of them except the hockey stick of revenues. And that's obviously our goal this year. So, you know, eventually for funding, since the angel investors probably weren't a practical option. And once they were a realistic option, we wouldn't need them. So I then tried the grant route. And initially, I wasn't successful with that. And when I spoke to the program manager at the NSF after getting rejected twice, the first time I actually got a reasonable rejection where it seemed reasonable to me. So I figured, okay, no problem. I'll fix a few of the issues and then reapply. And I did that. And the second rejection was completely wrong. The reviewers were factually wrong. I would say one thing in the review, they would reject me based on factually false premises. So I called the program manager and asked what was up and realized that you really have to speak to the program manager at the grant organizations, because otherwise you're just one of hundreds applying so I spoke to her, realized what I need to do, and she assured me I'd get a fair review and also suggested that I get some preliminary data. So we built an inexpensive prototype, and we got phenomenal data. We got over 99% TDS removal in under 10 seconds in one small device that was just hooked up to a propane tank. So with that data, we sent submitted that to the NSF, and we third time, we finally got our grant application and that gave us the initial seed money we needed to redefine it and start testing it at a well site. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I've got one more question. So this is just kind of a personal question. I like to ask this is what skills or habits have you developed over the course of your career that have helped you the most? One, never, ever give up. I don't care how many times you fail. If you really want it, you get back up and you keep on going. If you want to be a technology company, startup, you're basically telling the whole industry they're wrong. <laughs> and believe me, you're going to be proven 
wrong plenty of times before you're proven right. So be prepared to fail, 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 and never give up. And I can tell you how many times people told me, you're crazy, give up. And I've never given up. Even if I thought about it, it was usually a quick thought and then redirect my mind and say, look, the goal. And you have to have a big enough reason why in order to overcome these failures. Now, money is important. I'm not here to tell you money is important, but probably if money is your number one goal, go work for corporate America and get a nice paycheck. But, you know. And I definitely agree with you there. Like, I think that's more on the mindset, right? So I think what you're saying is, you know, the skill that you've developed is developing a mindset for never quitting, right? Never quitting. Be resourceful. You're not going to have the resources you always need. That just means you need to be resourceful, be able to motivate people. And then also as a startup, a lot of times we focus on the technology. Really, no one cares about your technology. They want you to solve their problem. So you have to understand the customer problem and find a way to solve their problem and generally solve it for less money and less headache than they have right now. So if you can't solve a customer problem, they're not going to give you the money. Yeah, I think we touched on that a little bit at the last happy hour when people said, well, you know, what should companies be worried about, you know, going into the future? Because obviously as things change in the landscape and it was just, if you can't bring value to the table, then you can't expect anybody to want to buy your product or service. You have to be able to prove your value. And if you can't prove it, then nobody's going to buy from you. And just like you said, the other thing too is I think this kind of goes to that is, you know, when you go and you present to, let's say an engineering group at an operator, I mean, these are very intelligent people and they've worked really hard to get into positions that they're at. When they decide to say yes, because usually it's collectively, it's not just one person, it's collectively, they are all saying like, okay, if this doesn't work, we all could definitely find ourselves in the hot seat for this not working. So, you know, they're putting their name on the line for you if they decide to buy your product or service, right? They're spending the company's resources. So you got to bring value to the table or else you're going to find yourself at the doorstep really fast. Yeah. And you have to know the market and be able to segment the market. Now, initially, you know, well, we were looking at the big major oil companies and we're still working with them, but we also realized, you know, that they have a lot of costs and it's difficult to put technology on their well sites. So we've actually pivoted. We're still working with the big oil companies, but they have the larger sales cycles. We're actually pivoting to the smaller oil and gas producers. Why? It's a much quicker sales cycle. Their needs are much less aggressive. They have smaller volumes, so we could deploy less capital at the well site. Instead of convincing whole teams of engineers and executives and lawyers that your product is good, generally, you have to convince a pumper or one engineer and maybe sometimes the owner to get on site. And basically, it's hooking up to their well site for us and running the technology. So what we've decided was rather than doing these huge expensive field trials for the oil majors, which we're still doing one with one major, why not commercialize the product, offer it to the small producers who have much less volumes that they need so we could build the equipment 
since we have a modular approach, small scale for the smaller well sites reasonably, and then we can offer them an irresistible offer. We'll go onto the well site for free, run it for several weeks, and if they don't want us, we leave. And we're so <laughs> confident that we'll save them money that they're not going to want us to leave. So I call it the irresistible, no risk offer. You don't pay us a penny unless you want us to stay and you base it on your savings. Right on. Gary, I really appreciate you taking some time. Before we leave, I want to remind the listeners to go and enter our weekly giveaway and rate, review, and connect with us if you have any feedback. Before we go, Gary, can you tell the listeners how they can learn more about your company and connect with you guys. Okay. So the easiest way to connect with us is to go to our website, catswater.com or catswatertx.com. And also you can connect with me on LinkedIn. So if you do a search for Gary Katz or Cats Water Technologies, you'll find us on LinkedIn. And then I have my email listed. Is it okay if I give it right now over sure, your podcast? It's very easy. Gary, G-A-R-Y at catswater, K-A-T-Z. W-A-T-E-R.com. And I'd love to work with the industry. If anyone has a general patent question, I'd love to answer it. Or if you know a well site that has very expensive water disposal costs and is looking for a solution, we'll be happy to talk to them and figure out if we're a good solution. If we are, we'll make them that irresistible offer. Don't pay us until we save you money. Awesome, Gary. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right. Be well. Thank you. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.